It is my great pleasure to introduce the next panel of speakers uh, for this evening. But uh, before I do so, I just say that I, I'm speaking on behalf of the um, RDS Library and Archives Committee. And it's a great pleasure for us to welcome uh, you to this event uh, this evening, this afternoon, in partnership with the Dublin Book Festival. Uh, the RDS is, of course, um, a very um, highly respected uh, and uh, historical organization in its own right. Um, and it is uh, a, private, a private organization. But I should stress that it is also a resource which is available to the wider public. You can see it here in this magnificent library. And we also have uh, a very, very interesting and quite uh, opulent archive of original material here. Our, our, our archivist in charge, Natasha Cern, is at the back of the room there and is always willing to assist scholars and researchers in going through the, the many items of great interest that we have in the archive uh, pertaining to everything from the history of the Irish Army jumping team to scientific breakthroughs dating back to the mid-18th century and archaeological and historical and agricultural uh, breakthroughs which have been explored and developed uh, through scientific and developmental processes in Ireland over the last two centuries. So I'm just, I just want to put that out there for you that the RDS is there as a resource for the wider public at large, as well as being, of course, the great institution that it has, as, as it has existed in its own right over the years. So the subject of our second panel today is the Irish Civil War in colour. And uh, we have um, with us Michael Barry, who is a historian and has written many books, including the best-selling uh, Victorian Dublin Revealed, which, a and a trilogy of books on the Irish Revolution period, as well as the uh, critically acclaimed illustrated history of the Irish Revolution, 1916 to 1923. And he has uh, collaborated with the other, uh, another speaker, John O'Byrne, who is a professional photographer and colorizer. And John was telling me that he's developed this technique of colorizing old photographs over a period of, of uh, 10 years or more. Uh, and uh, he has utilized that skill to excellent effect in the production of the, the, the book, which is the, the main focus of this afternoon's panel discussion. And to moderate the discussion, we have David McCullough, who uh, is a familiar face uh, and figure to everybody in the audience uh, from his uh, career, illustrious career in RTE uh, as a, a presenter of uh, 6 1 News. He was also, for many years, pre presenter of Prime Time and was the station's uh, main political correspondent for 12 years. He's also the author of a number of excellent historical uh, books the, the Reluctant Taoiseach a biography of John A. Costello. And to show that he's not biased, he also did a two-volume biography of Eamon de Valera, um, uh, The Rise and, uh, uh, the, and Rule, uh, the two volumes of that uh, history of Eamon de Valera. And more recently, he, he has been a uh, contributor to the great Irish politics book, A Guide for, Ch for, for Children as well as, as well as Adults. So I want you to give a warm welcome to our panel. Thank you. Thanks very much and good afternoon everybody. Uh, delighted to see so many people here to, uh, to participate in uh, this session because there will be uh, time for questions later on in the proceedings. So get thinking about what you'd like to ask our two distinguished authors. Um, this is a superb book and uh, the cliche is every picture uh, is worth uh, a thousand words. And I don't know whether you get extra words for colorizing them or not, but uh, I, I was just really struck by 
how the colorizing process has made uh, the images really stand out, and even images which are very familiar to us, uh, but there's also lots of photographs, and we'll talk about this in a minute, which uh, you will never have seen before. Added to which, uh, the captions to the photographs uh, really tell the story of the Irish Civil War, an unfortunate story in, in, in many ways, but an important one nonetheless. And the, the, the entire package, the photographs, the colorization, and the, uh, the text to go with them really bring the story alive and, and um, cover an awful lot of ground uh, in uh, a relatively short space of time. So Michael and John, congratulations. It really is a superb book. I believe there are copies available for purchase afterwards, mm -hmm. and I'm sure uh, the two of them will be very happy. Um, to, uh, to sign copies as well. So uh, there's a couple of things that I want to uh, talk to uh, Michael and John about, and I'm sure all of you will have questions as well. But in keeping with the idea that uh, every picture tells a story and every picture is worth a thousand words, I think Michael is going to just go through some of the images in the book and just explain a bit about them, and, and that'll kick us off. So, Michael. Thank you. So... Good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Um, so I'm going to, through about just around a dozen images, I'm going to try and give you the gist, uh, flavor of the book, but uh, tell the story uh, of the Civil War from A to Z, uh, just focusing on these few photographs on the, 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 the key events of the the Civil War, it's a, I have to go very fast because it was a very complicated, uh, it, it only lasted uh, just under a year, but a very complicated list of events. Just to say that, as mentioned, I've been working on the history and the photographs available of the Irish Revolution for over 10 years, so I had a pretty good idea of what was available there for the Irish Civil War. And John and I agreed on the formula for a book, uh, which is how it turned out. And um, uh, in particular, I, I'd seen, oh, I forget, about eight years ago, that John had done some colorizing of uh, images of the Civil War and other early Irish military history. I was really, really impressed by what he had done. So anyway, we worked on it. and. Uh, hence, uh, the book has come out and it's been very successful. There's been a, a great uh, reaction from uh, critics and the public alike. And in general, they, they say that the uh, colorizing aspect does bring the, uh, the events to life. So by means of an introduction, I'm going to go through just a few images just to give you an idea of uh, what we did in the book. So um, the cover photograph actually shows uh, a very the period. Uh, I think it was April 1922 when both it was uh, a couple of months after the treaty, and and both sides were jostling for position. Um, the provisional government had been set up, but the anti-treaty IRA was asserting its its power, if you like. And this this photograph of them marching up. Uh, Grafton Street, uh, wielding their Lee Enfields, uh, captures that. So back to the treaty. The, the War of Independence ended in July 1921 with the truce, and after that then negotiations began. This photograph shows the scene in July uh, 21 outside Downing Street, uh, where the many Irish people, I guess, uh, praying for peace as uh, de Valera negotiated with uh, Lloyd George. And then later on, uh, in October 21, the plenipotentiaries were sent to London, to Downing Street, and uh, eventually on the, on the 6th of December, the treaty was signed to uh, great uh, disarray and bitterness back in Ireland. And from mid-December 21, the Dáil met at Earlsford Terrace and held heated debates on the treaty. And the, the kernel of it was giving up the Republic declared in 1916 and asserted by the first Dáil in 1919. Um, the 
anti-treaty people felt they, they had achieved that and they didn't want to give it up. Uh, as an Irish Republic had been the, the shining goal of Irish Republicans and for the struggle for independence since the time of Wolf Tone. In this photograph, you see four women TDs. Uh, on the left, you see Catherine Clark, uh, widow of Thomas Clark of 1916, Countess Markovich, uh, Kathleen O'Callaghan. Her husband had been murdered by the Black and Tans. He was mayor of Limerick uh, uh, during the War of Independence. And Margaret Pierce, mother of Patrick. In effect, you could say this was Republican royalty. And all of these women, in fact, there were six women TDs in the Dáil at that time. They all opposed the treaty. And very importantly, most of the IRA was anti-treaty. And under the treaty, a provisional government had been instituted and it started to form its new army. And as British troops evacuated their, their barracks under the agreement. Uh, both sides jostled to gain control of the respective barracks. Um, the anti-treaty IRA uh, met to form an executive which rejected the authority of the new provisional government. And in April 1922, it took over uh, several buildings in Dublin, uh, including famously the, the, the four courts. Uh, the Four Courts was the most well-known, but it took over uh, several other buildings, including this one, which was the Kildare Street Club. And this is one of my favourite photographs in the book, actually, because it's, it's quite poignant. Because it shows uh, these are the anti-treaty IRA who had taken over, just taken over the club. You see them posing on their lorries with presumably sandbags there. But uh, what really gets me is that when, when they went into this bastion of Anglo-Irish toffs, they seized the, the, the top hats and the uniforms of the porters. So these are the IRA in top hats. And uh, so uh, there, there, were, there were negotiations and... Uh, consultations and, and uh, minor confrontations all in the first six months of 1922. But uh, the assassination of Sir Henry Wilson in, in London in June and a few days later the kidnap of the Deputy Chief of Staff of the, of the Provisional Government Army, uh, Lieutenant General O'Connell, uh, the, the Provisional Government Cabinet vowed to attack the four courts, and so, so the bombardment of the four courts uh, started. This is a photograph showing them using <coughs> the 18-pounders, which uh, I believe we just have an example, not an example, an actual yeah, uh, uh, real shell from that bombardment. So there you go. Um, initially, the the 18-pounders, the, the they got four 18-pounders uh, in the first few days. Uh, they, they, uh, they ran out of uh, high-explosive shells. All they had then were shrapnel shells, which are really like firing a giant shotgun at a, at a building, a granite building like the forecourts, which was useless. So the British had to send a destroyer post-haste up to a, an arsenal in Northern Ireland to collect the requisite uh, high explosive shells, and they did, and uh, they, they eventually caused breaches in the forecourts, and they captured it. So the next part of the forecourt story is this massive explosion, which was the largest Dublin had ever experienced. It happened on the 30th of June at around 12.30 p.m. Uh, it, the explosion was at the western end of the so-called headquarters block at the back of the complex, where munitions had been stored. And burning, the adjacent to that was the public record office of the, sorry, the treasury building of the public record office where uh, archives were stored. The, the roof and some of the walls were blown out of that and burning embers settled in the packed documents inside in the treasury building and a firestorm ensued and a cloud of white smoke went up and with it the a lot of the history of Ireland, the um, parchments, legal documents, etc., of the previous, what is it, 700 years, I guess, 
Um, at the same time, or at the same time as the attack on the four courts, the anti-treaty IRA then took over buildings in central Dublin, uh, including the so-called block around uh, Upper Sackville Street, and the street became the, the scene of shelling and great buildings uh, went on fire. And by the 5th of July, the block in ruins was cleared of resistance. However, the uh, uh, prominent anti-treaty leader, Cahill Brew, was fatally wounded. Uh, I'll come to that in the next slide. And Republican forces left the city for the countryside. And then, and then the war moved from, the Civil War as a whole moved from being mainly a, a city uh, a conflict in city to the war in the countryside. And this shows Cottlebrew laid out in the uh, Matter Hospital, in the mortuary of the Matter Hospital. So he had been in charge of a small rear guard section in the Granville Hotel, part of the block. And around 7 p.m. with the uh, whole block in flames, he ordered his, his unit to, to, to retreat. But he emerged out into the back lane with pistol in hand and he was shot by the, the provision government soldiers, I think with a Lewis machine gun. He was hit in the femoral artery, brought to the Mato Hospital where he died late, days later. And you see him laid out in the mortuary, flanked by Kamenamon, Guard of Honour. Kamenamon, incidentally, mainly took the anti-treaty side, and they were very, very useful in all sorts of logistical support for the anti-treaty side, all the way through the Civil War. But um, actually, in January this year, I had coffee with a friend of mine who's a grandson of Cahillbrew, and he told me the very poignant story about how his mother had told him that she, as a little girl, was brought up to the mortuary. And when she went into the mortuary and touched her grandfather's hand, the body was still warm. So that, that brought it very, you know, immediately and poignantly home to me, this, this photograph. And so, as I said, the main conflict moved out of Dublin. There were clashes between the pro and anti-treaty forces, uh, particularly in Limerick, which was a very strategic location on the Shannon, uh, controlling that whole region. And uh, the, the, later on, the, the, uh, in a rerun of the battles in Dublin, the provisional government took the city this is a photograph of the fighting in the countryside afterwards. It's um, very well posed. It shows these are pro-treaty soldiers. Again, everything was rushed in that war uh, at the early stages of war. They didn't, hadn't time to, to get their uniforms. There they are sitting on a commandeered uh, truck, petrol tr or some kind of petroleum truck, uh, getting photographs from a pro-treaty supporter. Somebody had said to me, that he was a TD, but I haven't been able to, to uh, collaborate that. And the, then uh, the, the uh, provisional government army were on a roll, I guess, and so they decided in July 1922 to mount a series of amphibious landings in the southern and western coast because all the communications, the roads and the railways were cut and it was too dangerous to travel through the countryside. So, that they had success in landings in, in uh, Phoenix, in, in County Kerry, and also in, in uh, Westport, in County Mayo. And after that, they mounted the big amphibious expedition to Cork, uh, three, landing, uh, th three separate landings on the same day in Yall, the main one in Passage West, and the other one in Union Hall in West Cork. It was successful, and Cork was taken on the 10th of August, 1922, and thus the core of the anti-treaty Munster Republic faded away. And after the taking of the city, ships could sail upriver to berth at the Cork Keys, and here's the steamer, the cross-channel steamer, the Lady Wicklow, laden with troops on its way up to the, in the upper reaches of Cork Harbour, on its way up to the Cork Keys. And the, the one, probably the most prominent man 
in the whole civil war, or certainly as looked as people look back on the civil war, was Michael Collins, and he was at the beginning of a tour of the south when the news came of the death of Arthur Griffith, and he returned to Dublin to attend the funeral on the 16th of August 1922, little knowing that he was going to be dead six days later, and he resumed his tour and he travelling in the convoy through West Cork, he was shot dead on an ambush on the 22nd of August, and an enormous state funeral followed. This is thought to be the last photograph of Collins as he passed through Bandon um, on the return journey, but 30 to 45 minutes later, he, in fading light, the convoy approached Belnablaw, where an ambush had been planned earlier by the IRA, but at that, in, uh, at that stage, they thought they, uh, there was no chance of the, the convoy returning, so they were clearing away the barricade when uh, Collins' convoy showed up, and uh, there was a heavy exchange of fire, and Collins fired at the attackers with his, with his rifle, and uh, uh, he was shot in the head, probably a very lucky shot, and he fell mortally wounded. And... Uh, hence uh, transported with great difficulty back to Cork and, er, and to Shanachiel Hospital at around 2 o'clock in the morning, and then the following day he was brought by steamer to Dublin and the, the big funeral ensued. So autumn 1922 was the beginning of the end. The provisional government had captured the cities and had gained control of the towns. However, anti-treaty fighters still roamed the mountains, mainly the western mountains, but it got bitter then. A cycle of ruthless executions of Republicans started in November 1922, which in turn generated reprisals. After Sean Hale's TD was killed in Dublin in December 1922, four prominent uh, Republicans were immediately executed that without any legal basis. It was purely a reprisal. And the, the Nader came in early 1923 when the slaughter of pro-treaty troops by a trap mine in Nocknagoshal in Kerry led to the brutal murder of prisoners uh, being blown up by a mine in Tralee and in, in Karsavina and in Killarney. When this photograph emerged in 2021, it caused an immediate stir. Was this a real-life execution? However, uh, a bit of close examination, you can see it, it really wasn't. Uh, the prisoner has a cigarette in his, in his hand. Uh, he doesn't seem duly perturbed, and he's not bound. And the, if you look at the faces of the, the various people there, uh, the, you can detect a slight smirk, I think. And uh, as a military person told me, in a firing squad, the firing... The, the squad is lined at 90 degrees to the, to the prisoner, not, not spread out handily for the, for, for, the, um, uh, for the cameraman. So maybe a, uh, a barracks jape. Um, but on a more serious level, a recent es estimate of the number of official executions by the Free State Army uh, it used to be known as 77, but the latest tally is 83 people killed officially by the, the Free State. So in early 1923, the IRA were losing. Effectively, they had lost. Some of them didn't really realize it. Uh, there was an IRA executive meeting held on the 23rd of March, 1923, in the Nara Valley. <coughs> They voted to continue the struggle. And Liam Lynch, who was IRA chief of staff, was on his way three weeks afterwards to a meeting to continue the discussion, to, to, to continue the idea whether they continued the struggle or not. But uh, there was a free state sweep in the Knockneal Dan Mountains, and his party were spotted. And as he, as he fled up the mountain, um, a lucky shot hit him and uh, he was brought down the mountain, and he died in Clonmel Hospital later that day. So weeks later, on the 24th of May, 1923, the new IRA Chief of Staff, Frank Aiken, sent an order that 
The arms which we have fought the enemies of our country are to be dumped. The foreign and domestic enemies of the Republic have for the moment prevailed. So at that stage, the, the Free State had won the, effectively won the, the military battle. So that was it. The Civil War was effectively over and life was very bleak for the defeated Republicans. There, there were no jobs, uh, there was institutional discrimination against and many of them had to emigrate. And these are the victors, the members of the Free State government demonstrating a penchant for formal wear. Uh, to be fair, that was the common way ministers of governments dressed in those days in formal occasions. And this conservative group of men now had to face the task of reducing a swollen army and rebuilding a bankrupt, bitter and divided state. And just one last slide um, through the medium of one image. I'm going to give a little insight into one of the constraints in preparing an illustrated book like ours, because there were, there were thousands of photographs and so much was very difficult to choose one over the other. So this is one that you haven't seen, because in particular because I got it from a, a, a private uh, individual, a very helpful man. Actually, his, his father, his grandfather was one of the people in that picture of the um, IRA in front uh, Maybe he was wearing a top hat, actually, I don't think so, uh, in front of the Kildare Street Club. And I think his father is one of the serried masses in this one. This, it's a great photograph. It shows the Dublin Brigade of the IRA, all anti-treaty, lined up in Smithfield at the beginning of April 1922. There are thousands of them. The photograph conveys a feeling of the power of the anti-treaty side of that at that early time, showing their defiance to the fledgling provisional government, which was then struggling to recruit its new army and build up its strength. However, just the constraints of doing a book, we had to apply quality control. If you look, there's too much contrast, and John had a go at it, but there was scarcely any colour, so we didn't use it. But anyway, at least it gets a public viewing here. So thank you very much for your attention. Thanks very much, Michael, and uh, that was a brilliant summary of the Civil War. Obviously, there's, there's a, a lot of nuance uh, there that you've managed to get in. And I was just struck by the, the, the selection of images, just as with the book, the selection of, of the images really drives the, the narrative along. And some of those photographs will be familiar to people. A lot of them won't. That obviously won't be familiar to people. I don't think I've ever seen the one of the lads outside the um, Kildare Street Club with the, with the top hats before. Um, so some of them are familiar, some of them are not familiar. But the one thing they have in common is that they're in colour, colourised. Now, John, you're going to explain to us about, about, how, about the process. But before you do, this is not uncontroversial. There are purists who would say that by adding colour to a black and white image, you're changing the image, and they would probably accuse you of historical vandalism. What would you say <laughs> to that? I would say, and actually, thank you very much for having me here today. It's completely out of my wheelhouse doing any of these events. I would say that they need to check their facts. Okay. It has been done since the 1840s. Uh, in Dublin here, it's actually been done with daguerreotypes by a gentleman by the name of Maxwell, I believe, in the 1840s, 1860s. He was, I suppose, if they wanted to be purists about it, vandalizing the original photograph. So he was taking the original metal plate and painting right on top of it, meaning the original underneath was lost, gone. You're not going to get it back. You can try scraping away, it's gone. A photograph is a photograph, whether it's in color or not. If anything were to speak before, to, sorry, to talk beforehand with competent iotas from the military archives, if anything, we're preserving a record of the original. You scan it, you have a digital copy. The original is not being touched. If anything, it's being cleaned and prepped for a scan. So I'd say, no, we're not. <laughs> okay, and, and I, I mean, the point is that even though the photograph is in black and white, the photographer obviously was taking it, he was seeing color, or yeah. he or she was seeing yeah. color. When yeah. the photograph was taken, it wasn't taken in a black and white world. Um, Michael, from the point of view of, his, of an historian, um, how much value do you think the colorizing adds to it? Because I mean, it, it really does make them pop, and it's, it's more like what people would have seen at the time. 
First of all, just before I answer that, I think the whole business of, of colour, it's a matter of taste. Some people absolutely hate it, and fair enough, it's, it's, it's their prerogative, but uh, to me, it truly has brought the various scenes alive, uh, quite apart from a technical thing too. In some of the photographs that John has colorized, I noticed things I hadn't noticed before, like um, there's one photograph of the anti-treaty prisoners being round up in Cork. Panoramic photograph, great photograph, but in the background, uh, John brought out the trees and he, he brought the, in a way you could say he brought the photograph from the two dimensions to giving it a three-dimensional thing. Um, also, there are other little things, like um, in actual fact, at the back, this photograph at, which the, was used on the back of the book, uh, showing Bridie Galler, a little girl who was a refugee from uh, the pogroms in the north. There were, the, 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 the pogroms in the north increased at the beginning of 1922, and there were about 10,000 refugees fled shades of Ukraine fled down to Dublin where actually the anti-treaty IRA accommodated them in various places. This is a picture of her. This is your second picture outside the Kildare Street Club. That's the Kildare Street Club in the background there. But anyway, just... She didn't uh, get a top hat though. <laughs> no, she didn't. But uh, it's out of shot here. It's in the photograph is inside in the book, but just to add with regard to colorization, that there's a little something I don't know, it's a sweet tin or a tea tin with multicolored decoration on it, and the, <coughs> the whole thing jumps out at you. John managed to, to with his attention to detail, managed to get that. So anyway, in in the big picture and in the small picture, I think John has managed to get the bring the whole story alive. Absolutely. So, John, colorizing, how does one go about doing well, that? Okay. The, the handiest That's way to go start. To, you click there, Michael. So, this is just a very quick uh, uh, I don't think you need process that. of it. So, we take the scan of the original and like that, we'll fiddle around with the, the lights, the, let's see, the highlights, the shadows, the blacks, the whites. Most of the time, I wouldn't touch any damage or specs that are on the original negative. I work with what the original photographer produced. This one was a private commission for someone, so we said we'll just remove any small little blemishes that have been picked up over the years. It's like that, we'll add a little bit. We don't use any artificial intelligence apps to sharpen faces, because that's vandalism, in my, <laughs> in my own opinion. Mm. It just takes randomized, puts them in. We then bring it in to the application that we do use for painting, and it's the very same as Microsoft Paint, if anyone ever used that grown up. It's the very same. I have a palette of colors that I pick, and I paint in every little pixel in detail. So here we're starting with the background, very same as the color that was on the original postcard. After that, then, the background. Why didn't I pick red? Why didn't I pick pink? It just, over the years of doing it, I'm a photographer by trade myself, you'd look at what was there at the time. Most photography studios, anything that has survived, you would either be very dark navies, very dark reds, or you'd have the creams, the yellows, the brighter colors. Um, with this, you can see the shades of gray that are in it. If you take a photograph of the room here and put it into black and white, you're still gonna be able to see traces of the room. You're gonna see that this is, it's not gonna be bright blue. It's gonna be black. You're gonna see the different colors on the floor. The walls are the very same. So here, you nearly start to kind of read through the, the layers of gray, the shades of gray. So the best thing about military portraits for me to do is they're actually one of the easier things to color. You know that a National Army uniform is going to be a shade of green. Mm -hmm. Thankfully for myself as well, less um, research was needed. There is no ribbons. There is no, in this case, there's no lanyards. It's just a green tunic with brass metalwork. And as you can see there, you're painting in every detail, so it's completely different to some of the artificial intelligence generated coloring apps, where I've seen one or two of them done before, and it is getting progressively better, and I have to put my hands up and say, yeah, my job is going to be gone in a couple of years. Grand, I may find something else. But um, I've seen it where the app will read a black and white image, and where the shadow comes in on the uniform, so in the creases and in where the stitching is, you'll see blues and reds come in bit of a color bleed that the app itself can't read. 
the human touch, I suppose, or the artificial paintbrush can color it in. I like that I start every photograph the same, work my way around everything. The smaller details in the tunic get done, move on to the cap, and move on to the, the face. Is there any questions now while this is playing away on the process of could be a handy way of doing it? How long, is this, how long does this take you? So the video there is about six minutes long, but that's about three and a half hours right. of colouring without the without the, the sorry the prior research into the colours or. Okay, but um, as you say, like it's, it's straightforward enough that yeah, th that, this that, is a that example colour. there is. But Bridie here, yeah, you don't know what colour her dress was. No, but in black and white, and you start reading it, and it's a funny thing that you do start to notice shades. Right. But when it came to her dress, you're going back through, I said it, we did a quick interview on the Late Late Show. I spent many a night back in Kildare going through 1920s Vogues to look at fashion for, how would you say it, the, the different levels of society. So Brady's dress, you're kind of going grand, looked at the colours of what was around, and the red brick on the wall is very close to the colour of her dress, but it's a bit darker. I said, Grand, colouring what I know first, you know the footpad is going to be a certain colour, you know the wall is going to be a certain colour. Everything kind of builds off one another. And I put blue on it, didn't sit right, just didn't blend itself well. It was too heavy, it was too, too much of a punch. So instead, like in contrast to the artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. you're bringing a, a subjective judgement to it. To, to, to a degree, yeah, yeah. With, with enough sort of confidently enough say that with the research and with the time that goes into when I started off doing this, and even with the likes of that, with Brady Gallagher, like there was an awful lot of research went into it. The little tea chest, I think it was, that Michael was talking about that's actually in the book but not in the back cover, I had to go through a collector's page, Irish enamel collectors or something like that. Right. Mm. Had to join, had to tell them why I'm joining. <laughs> do you collect, do you want to be part of the group? And eventually scrolled back and found pretty much the exact my copy of it, right, and that's where I got my research for that one. Or the, okay, or and that. then it, does that sort of help with your? So you know the original colour of that, and you know how it's represented in black and white. So that gives you clues to that's yeah, the and rest it kind of, of goes back into my head then that right that shade of grey or that shade of black in that picture worked out to be bright blue or gold. Hmm. I know on the next one then. Okay, if I don't know, it, try that colour first. If that doesn't work, we'll try a different shade of that colour and. 90% of the time it, it has worked out. There's been a few that, in the background, if we took a photograph here and you can't see a book that's 40 feet that way. Mm. Thankfully, back then, the books were all similarly coloured. You can read through it. If I was doing it today, there's no way in hell that you'd be able to tell that it's white, 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 white. With You could do it, but it's I wouldn't have the patience for that. Yeah, I have okay. patience for a lot of fine detail. Okay. Um, oh, sorry, yes. Yeah, sorry. Uh, hello, thank you each for your contribution. My name is Nola Gofinila, and we've been here for the afternoon talking about some of these matters. So um, I'm going to try to connect the conversation. There are two things that I wanted to ask about. One is the, the events of the Civil War are very, very distressing for people, and understandably so. But there seems to me like a particular threshold with the assassination, with the death of Arthur Griffith and the assassination of Michael Collins it seemed like a threshold was crossed in terms of our understanding and our commitment to each other as a people, which then created this horrendous backlash. And this threshold needs to be discussed a little bit more in some ways so that we have in our minds what it means to make a commitment as a people to our own future and the realization of our future as a society. And that when you cross those thresholds, that there's such a loss of faith and the retaliation that comes with it that there is a tremendous division so that concept of a psychic um, crossing could, is a very, very important question. And so too it was with the relationship in Ireland and England and the 1916 assassinations. They still weigh heavily on people's souls, I think. And the, third, the other thing I wanted to bring to light is the, um, and the, there's another aspect of that in the 1980s with the hunger strikes. So those three events are very, very... Um, they need to be challenged so that they don't become repeated in a new challenge or in a new war or a new uh, kind of situation that society finds themselves in. The other thing I wanted to bring up is that what you're talking about, colour, is material culture. 
it's not about finding a nice color that matches. It's very important that it's contextualized to the patina of the day because you had very famous people who were designing color in a meaningful way. Sometimes we find them humorously, but sometimes they're found with very great thought. So to have it discussed in terms of the material culture of the day is very, very important. It matters, it means they have names. Those names have visualizations that are tangible and some intangible. But to the people of the time, the slightest gradation, such as you even see there, means sunbeam, lime. You know, they're very particular and they're designed by very brilliant people. And it's like the discussion earlier on that they were having and they mentioned the stationery. It's and part of the culture, it's, it's part of the material. It's and you those date fine it, little you details that it. do make it. Yes, and the conservationists, they know this, you oh know. Yeah, yeah. They would see through that in, se in seconds. But I still think it's very, um, I, I really think it's very agreeable and it's very interesting and I thank you. Oh. It's great work. Thank you, thank, thank you very much. Uh, Michael, that, that point about the, the threshold uh, being passed with the, uh, with the, um, the killing of, of Collins and, and, and the death of Griffith, and, and, and you adverted to it in, in, in your talk about how you know, things got much worse uh, from the executions in November and, and so on. And actually, in, w one of the things that struck me in the book was um, you have pictures from early on in the Civil War which show captured Republicans and obviously getting on quite well with their captors and, and there's a very different feel to that early part of the Civil War as opposed to the later part. Yes, uh, there, there's actually uh, one of the photographs shows a, it's a, what they call the South West Campaign uh, in the fighting around Kilmallock after the capture of Limerick. This would be uh, July, if I remember, Ju July 1922, there's a picture of a young Republican prisoner, young man, and a slightly older uh, provisional government captor with his rifle marching along. Uh, photographers capture them, the, 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 the prisoner grins sheepishly, and the, the uh, uh, the, the, the uh, captor, the, the free state soldier is, is grinning. And it, it was so, almost carefree then. Um, at that time, that the, the, these people were former comrades and it must have been difficult for them to, to move into, the, into shooting at each other. Uh, after the uh, capture of the forecourts, uh, the prisoners therein were being herded off to, I think it was the Jemison's distillery in Smithfield. And um, it just shows the almost informal treatment that uh, Captain pa Padraig O'Connor spotted some of, the, uh, of his former colleagues. And he, when they were being herded into the courtyard in Jemison's distillery, he opened uh, a door and allowed a couple of them, including, I think, Ernie O'Malley, if I remember, to, to escape. Um, that, 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 that was in July. Um, after Collins' death, there was shock all over the country, uh, both on the provision government side, but also in the anti-treaty side. They, they were shocked as well. It was almost an accidental death to some degree. It, uh, and uh, General Richard Mulcahy issued an order to the army to, to, to uh, stand proud and take no reprisal. However, uh, there, there was a semi-military CID department called Oriel House. And uh, in the two or three days after Collins' death, uh, three young anti-treaty, um, two of the Finnairn and one, I think, of the anti-treaty IRA were lifted off the street and, and were just shot dead. So there was bitterness then. But um, I think really it was September of 22 when it really got bad. There were, the, 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 the war had moved out to the countryside where in a way it was almost, and the, 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 the provi I call them provisional government in 22 because the, the free state didn't become constituted till I think it was the, the anniversary of the treaty on the 6th of December. 22. So I call them the provision government soldiers then. Um, 
they had command, general command of the towns and cities, and they went out and patrolled from there. So, in a way, it was like a re became a rerun of the War of Independence when the auxiliaries and the British military went out in their Crosley tenders and were blown up and, and shot at. And the same happened to the to to the uh, provision government soldiers and. Um, it began to get quite bitter. You know, for example, in, in, in September, Tom Keogh, who was an associate of, of Michael Collins in, in the squad, uh, I forget was he a commandant at that stage, but he and I think six other uh, soldiers were blown up in a trap mine in Pulafuca Bridge near, near uh, McCroom. The next day, an anti-treaty uh, uh, Arayman was rounded up, brought to the crater and shot dead. Uh, Emmett Dalton presided, when he was in charge in Cork, presided over a few um, unexplained deaths in, in Cork. And then, as it got more bitter, the, the government brought in the public, or public safety bill at the end of October. And after... Uh, um, that, that was quite harsh, that if you're caught uh, with weapons, uh, you were brought before a military tribunal, and you could be, you could be sentenced to death. Um, after four young men were caught in Inchicore, I think, sorry, I think it was in Inchicore, uh, and shot dead at the beginning of November, uh, the most famous uh, person arrested was Erskine Childers, who was caught with, with a tiny little automatic pistol in mid-November and sentenced to death and executed by Faring Squad in Beggar's Bush. And so the cycle continued. As these official executions rolled on, the, uh, Liam Lynch, the chief of staff of the IRA, uh, uh, said that uh, anybody who voted against the uh, that uh, sorry voted for that bill was liable to be to be shot, and then Sean Hales was shot on the seventh of December, I think. Uh, he was a TD, very prominent TD, and uh, the executive council, the government, were in a kind of a panic, and met that afternoon, and they ordered that four prominent Republicans be uh, prisoners be beat be uh, shot the next day. So the, uh, four, four were duly told in their cell at 3.30 the next morning that they were going to be shot. And they were shot, I think, at 7 o'clock. All four in, in, uh, executed together. And so it rolled on. The, the, the anti-treaty uh, IRA burned uh, the, the buildings uh, of uh, uh, the government supporters, uh, Cosgrave's house was burned. Uh, many members of the Senate who were various lords, their great mansions were burned uh, in, I think it was January, um, in Fibsburg Avenue in Dublin. Um, um, uh, Sean McGarry was a prominent TD, pro-treaty supporter. His house was burned out and in so doing, his. I forget his age, was it nine or seven-year-old seven son, Emmett McGarry, uh, suffered burns, and he died uh, soon afterwards in hospital. Um, and then uh, the worst of all, as, as I mentioned, was, uh, was when it came to Kerry, where the provision government army was like a foreign force. Uh, the, the, a lot of them were Dubliners and Dubliners and Kerrymen. Um, or they di it didn't sit well in Kerry, and um, they were like an occupying army. And uh, when in Nocknagoshul, uh, it was the the soldiers were blown up at the trap mines. Trap mines were particularly vicious things, you know. That it was like a st they got a tip that there was a, an, a, an arms dump in a particular place, and there was a stone which, if you lifted it, the the mine went off. So it was particularly vicious and. The uh, various soldiers were blown up, including members of the Dublin Guard, uh, colleagues of uh, Major General Paddy O'Daly, who was in charge in Kerry. And he was incandes incandescent at the news. And uh, duly that night, 
I think it was that night that um, the nine prisoners in Ballymullion Barracks were brought out to Ballyseated Cross, tied to a mine and blown up. And the story was that they were clearing, clearing the mine, but because one of the prisoners was blown clear, the word came out. Uh, so those are examples of the really vicious uh, tenor of the war at that stage. Uh, it, it had uh, the, uh, the uh, government, the provisional government, were claiming all these harsh measures were saving saving civilization as they knew it. But um, and that. The, the execution of the 80, this semi so called official executions of the 83 prisoners, that led to the bitterness that has ensued up to today. However, just to finish on civilization as such, we're now in the, hundred, in the centenary of the Civil War, and I was anticipating that there was going to be an awful lot of argument and bitterness in the public prints and on television, but in a way, compared to 1916, where there were some a minority of dissenting voices who said, oh, 1916 shouldn't have happened, it was anti-democratic and so on. I think the, insofar as I can see, the, the public discourse on the Civil War has been, has been very dignified and, and sensible, and uh, it's a sign of maturity of the state. And the other thing to add is that it just so happens that the two sides, the protagonists in the Civil War, happen to be in coalition in government right now. And they seem to be uh, getting on very well. Uh, just in my personal opinion, I think they should just give up the ghost and, and, and uh, merge and get on with it. Okay, well, I, I better say nothing about that. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's a lady there in, in blue. Yeah, I'd just like to ask the photographer because I was intrigued at the level on, of photographs that you actually received. Um, so presumably a lot of the information like the photographs of Cahabrua and that, were they accessed through public records or was there general access given to press at that time? So for the photographer themselves to be there, so there was, I would say, there was different levels of photographers around. There was the civilian on the street, like the photograph of the forecourts being bombed. That was just by the size of the negative and everything. That was your everyday box brownie, sort of run of the mill camera of the day. There was also international press that were embedded with both IRA and, or sorry, National Army and anti treaty. Um, like that was combat photography in Ireland in the 20s. You had photographers from all around the world. The French press had an awful lot of stuff, and we got an awful lot of images from their archives of photographers who were in with National Army troops, especially the National Army. But we're in, I'm not too sure of the photographer of the Cahalbrua one as to whether that was, because we didn't get the actual original negative in our hands. We got a scanned version of it. But from the quality that it was taken, it was definitely someone who knew what they were at with a camera. It was not left full open on aperture, it's detailed right into the belt buckle and kind of fades off a little bit. So it was someone who definitely knew what they were at and with the level of detail that you could zoom in on, it was more than likely a, media, a medium format or a glass plate negative camera. So it would have taken a while <coughs> to set up and do, which would lend it to being an official press or someone that was embedded at the time. Gentleman there. Uh, <clears throat> just. Uh, ask one question, make one point. Uh, I suppose 25 years ago, uh, a man who uh, was uh, aged over 100, who had <coughs> been in the old IRA and the Free State Army, uh, told me that he was sent to arrest Tom Barry, apparently during the Civil War, and before he arrested him, he played cards with him the whole night. Now, I mean, this is the think about the bitterness and the collegiality at the beginning. Now, I'm not vouching for the veracity of that story, but that's what this man told me. He would have been from the Limerick or Cork sort of area. Thanks very much. Anybody else? Because we're uh, I'm getting the evil eye. We're we're nearly mm. uh, <laughs> we're we're nearly out of time. But there's two gentlemen uh, up at the up at the back. Two, two gentlemen up there, red shirt, and, and behind him. 
over here, sorry. Um, and, and perhaps we could take take each both of you, and then we'll we'll wrap up. So. Yeah, I just um, in relation to the revolver that uh, Childers had when he was arrested, I understand that that was given to him by Michael Collins, yeah. if that's correct. Mm. It's in the National Museum. Mm. Okay. Um, the other uh, just is the killing of um, I think it's Captain Henry Wilson. Um, it's it, like at the time it was put out that I understand again that it was the anti, it was the the um, anti anti treaty forces uh, or or people belong to the anti treaty with the organisation in London, but in more recent times I've heard that uh, Michael Collins yeah. may have been behind it. Yeah. And any comments on that? Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll just take the, the second question as well, if we might. If I could ask a general question about the civil war. Was the civil war avoidable? Bear in mind that in the treaty negotiations, the majority of TDs voted for the treaty. Uh, in the election before the start of the civil war, majority of 80%, I think, of people voted for treaty candidates during that election. Mm. Okay, well, um, Henry Wilson, for, first of all, Field Marshal Henry Wilson, uh, the anti-treaty IRA were blamed for it by the British, mm. but mm. I think the finger of suspicion points at Michael Collins, doesn't it? Well, um, no hedging now. <laughs> no, the, the, it, it hasn't been proven one way or the other. There have been, there've been uh, various statements uh, by various participants at the time. Uh, some, I, I forget the exact statement, but indicating that Collins approved of it. Uh, equally, that the, I think the, it was the, the London IRA who mounted the operation and two of their... I think the, the head of the London IRA and assistant both, I think, had uh, both had taken uh, been, been in the British Army. One was badly wounded and found it difficult to escape because yeah, was he, he missing he a leg. Leg. He had a wooden yeah. leg. But um, it's not proven one way or the other. But uh, as you said, David, the the British government or uh, the, the British cabinet were in a state of panic after after Wilson's assassination, and they sent an immediate uh, immediate message to the uh, provision government saying, we, we're not going to tolerate this, you've got to deal. They blamed the people in the forecourts, the anti-treaty IRA, uh, whether correctly or not, but it was the people in the forecourts who got the blame. But overall, who was ultimately behind it hasn't been proven. Now, the, the second question, uh, about the inevitability or otherwise of, of the civil war. It seems to me, and I don't know whether you'd, you'd agree, Michael, that once the truce was declared and once negotiations began, some kind of compromise was inevitable. So you were never gonna get everything that you were looking for. No. So compromise was inevitable. Did that inevitably mean that there was going to be some kind of civil war, civil strife, whatever you, you like, maybe not necessarily what, what happened, but some kind of civil war was inevitable? Well, first of all, the, the, when de Valera went first to, to, to London in July, he was presented, uh, Lloyd George presented him with uh, Lloyd George's point of view, what was going to be. And in reality, after all the negotiations and the delegation going across, I don't think the, what, was, what was presented and what was signed wasn't very much different from what uh, de Valera was presented with. Um, and the, 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 the main thing the Irish side had to, to, to face was that the British government on, under uh, Lloyd George was a coalition and he had some wild men in his, in his cabinet. And the, it's hard for us to imagine at, at this stage, but to the British, the empire was the be-all, and the crown, the the um, institution of the monarchy, was the be-all. And no ways could they conceive of allowing a country to, if you like, escape out of the British Empire. But uh, so the the Irish were facing with that, were faced with a rock, and there was very little wriggle room. Um, the Treaty, uh, treaty debates, uh, I found it quite interesting, and in your book, the um, De Valera's uh, article number two, mm, where, number two yeah. uh, sorry, document, document, document number two, where 
he, he was a magician with words, and he, he tried to fudge it and came up with the formula um, that the, the new entity of the Irish Free State was, was not going to be within the British Empire or the, or the Commonwealth, as they, they called it then, uh, that it was going to be in association with it. And then he had uh, Wrigley words that the authority of Ireland was the people of Ireland and it was not something not subject to the crown. So de Valera was trying to introduce fudge into it, but as I understood it, in it never in the in the heat of the treaty debates, he never really got a chance to to push this one. And well, it, it had also already been yeah. put up to the British, and yes. they were having none of it. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, the, my question would have been: even if they had accepted De Valera's slightly amended alternative, would the British have countenanced it? And as you say, not a chance. So it was the the shining light of a republic versus the hard rock of the, of the British concept of their empire and the monarchy, which ignited into our civil war. So it probably was inevitable. Okay, we could keep talking for another hour at least, and I'm sure there's plenty more questions, but unfortunately, uh, we don't have time, we're out of time. Uh, I am going to um, abuse my position by getting the two gentlemen to sign my copy of the book. Uh, there are copies available for purchase uh, at the rear of the hall, um, and I would highly recommend it. It's an excellent book. But I just want to say to John, to Michael, thank you very much for this fascinating talk, and thank you for your attention.